We are so excited again to eat from the table of the Word of God. I'm always excited to preach from the Word of God. Uh, We are continuing today in our faith series, and today what we're going to discuss is the delicate balance in between faith and works. It is a delicate balance between faith and works. Um, In 2019, really, especially in modern day church, I don't know that there has been a bigger issue. One specific topic that has caused a greater amount of grief and headache for believers than this. Now, if you're in this room and you understand salvation, then you know that we are not saved by anything that we do, which means there is nothing that merits our salvation. There is nothing we do that gives us saving faith. There is no works involved as far as how we are saved. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells us that in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you were saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. So we know that our salvation has no prerequisite except that it is a gift from God. But many of us have read the book of James and we are well aware that at one point James says something like, but faith without works is dead. Many of us may have thought that, well, Paul said in Ephesians that we are not saved by works. But then here comes James who says without works that that saving faith is dead. Now, when you immediately hear this without proper Bible exposition, it sounds like it is a contradiction, but it is not a contradiction. Listen, even if you are unfamiliar with the text, you have probably all run into trying to find and navigate the balance of how much work you should actually be doing to validate or justify or even solidify the fact that you have saving faith. Now, I understand that it is extremely difficult, especially in the day-to-day rigors of your salvation, to be able to navigate through this. So what I desire to do today is to provide a little clarity to you so that it will not just provide you understanding, but it will also provide you peace in your walk. I don't know that there can be a more stressful and strenuous thing for the believer who is always trying to check off the boxes to make sure that that day they were a Christian. So I want you to find that point of grace in between faith and in between works. And that brings us to our text today. We're back in the book of James again this week. James chapter 2, verse 14. It reads, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good job. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Hmm. James begins this passage by asking a rhetorical question. What good is it? What does it mean? What value is faith if it does not have good works that follow that faith? That's what he's saying. He is not saying that you must have works in order to have faith, but he is absolutely telling you that good faith produces what? It always produces good works. Now, very often we get the balance and we get the teeter confused because we think that there are good works that we can do that are going to provide in our lives for some sense of good faith. But that's not what it means. Many of us have even read this very verse and said faith without works is dead and thought that means, oh, if I want a car, I need to just put the work in to get the car. Not only is that a bad interpretation of this text, but it cheapens what faith really is. See, in order to have faith, it must be a product of the grace of God. That's what saving faith is. That is what salvation is. It is nothing you did to earn it. And so because you did no works to get it, it should produce in you good works. That's the balance. Not only should it produce good works... And when he talks about works, but it should also produce good disciplines in your life. It should also produce good balance in your life. It should also produce all the behaviors that come with being a Christian. Now, I realize that we are in no religion society today. Oh, I don't have religion. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't have religion. I have relationships. So it's all grace, baby. But in order to have that grace, that grace will produce something in you that is discernible to other Christians. Now. You may say we're religious, you may say we're legalists, but anything that the Bible says cannot be legalistic. Any right interpretation of the text is not legalistic, it's simply the truth. And so the realization I want you to have today is if I have a problem that faith should produce discernible works in my life, then you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. Amen. See, there has to be something that separates us from everybody else. The reason we know that James is not saying that if you do good deeds, it will provide a right relationship with you and God is because I don't know of any person other than Bill Gates who does more great works for people. He does great deeds. I've seen with my own eyes him pay for a person I know their entire school as long as they live. That's a good work. I've seen him feed millions of people. He and his wife, Melinda. Those are great works. But there is nothing about those good works that will produce in him who is a self-proclaimed atheist saving faith. So you can't just have the works apart from the faith and think that it puts you in right relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Now, I talk about this text a lot, but I, I really want you to understand it. When the rich man comes to him and he says, all right, I want eternal life. That's my desire. And I know that there has to be something I can do in order to get it. And Jesus says, unless you have it, there's nothing you can do. See, it doesn't matter what you do, no matter how beneficial it may be for people. If you do good works apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, your works are useless. And they don't produce any merit in heaven between you and God. But I do want you to understand, it is completely possible for you not to only do good works, have good habits, have good behaviors, have great morals, and still not have great faith in God. It is absolutely possible. So, Jesus reversed it on that man, and so today I want you to see how he has reversed it on us. Will good deeds produce in us good faith? Absolutely not. And even Jesus knew for that man, when he came to him and said, what good deed must I do? He told him, go sell everything that you have. He couldn't do it. But Jesus knew that he couldn't do it because there was nothing in him that would motivate him unto good works. Which is why he stopped short. See, If Bill Gates, which they are, if his deeds are motivated simply by improving the human condition, while the human condition is improved, there is no spiritual acuity. And just in case you didn't know this, Jesus did not come to improve the human condition. He came to destroy the human condition and give us spiritual awakeness. And so that brings us to our first point today. Faith is fruitful. Saving faith in God is fruitful. Now, what do I mean by it's fruitful? Well, anything a Christian does as an act of faith, anything a Christian does as an act of faith must be producing something that is discernible to other Christian believers. That's it. It must be producing in something. If I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, there is something about our faith that should be producing not only good works, but fruitful works in our lives. I should be able to look at you if you say that you're a Christian and not be shocked when you say that. Now, that goes against neo-grace. That goes against hyper-grace because you can really do whatever you want to do. But it produces good works in us, not bad works. And so the professing Christian who says, look, I am a Christian. I go to church, but it's not producing fruitfulness. See, going to church doesn't make you fruitful. Singing up here doesn't make you fruitful. Preaching from this pulpit doesn't make you fruitful. It is what? God is doing through you for others to bring them into saving faith. That's what makes you fruitful. And so if you are doing all the acts and all the deeds that make you a Christian, but is not producing a fruitful faith in you, you may need to reevaluate what you are. Because you may just be a great deed doer, but not a Christian. 
See, today, we live in a society where people say, well, you have no right to judge my Christianity. You have no right. Who are you to tell me that I'm not a Christian? I'm a Christian who's judging my life by the word. How are you judging yours? See, I don't look at you and judge your life based on mine, but I look at the word, judge my own life based on what I should be doing as a Christian. And then I make an assessment of everybody else who professes to be a Christian, which is not being a self-righteous Christian. It's just being a Christian. I'm going to show you in a second why that is. But I do think that the church created this problem to a degree. Because we convinced you that if you just behaved like a Christian, you were a Christian. And so we told you about all the external acts of what a Christian should be and what a Christian does. But we didn't tell you about the God that will produce those works in your life. And so I I want you to be able to see this external actions. Without the right faithful motivation are always fruitless. You get that? External actions, no matter how good they are, no matter how helpful they are, if they do not produce a benefiting faith-saving kind of work in the lives of others, if it isn't motivated by saving faith, then it's fruitful. doesn't care how beneficial it is. Look with me in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, Mm. nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a euphemism for going to hell. Thus, you will recognize them not by what they call themselves, but by what they produce. That's how we recognize if you are a Christian or not. That's how we assess each other. I understand that you're saying you're a Christian, but I'm not looking at the tree, nor am I looking at what its intended use is. I'm looking at what it's producing. The scripture is important for other believers. Remember how we talked about last week about the proven process of our personal salvation. We go through tests and we go through trials because they prove who we are to ourselves. Where there is a proven process that we should provide for, ev- for other professing Christians. So if you are a professing Christian, you should be willing to be proved by your claimed brothers and sisters. See, Jesus wanted us to understand there will always be counterfeits who come in. There are always counterfeits in what is the church. People who are professing to be Christians, but who are not practicing that Christianity in their lives. And see, their goal is to look as real as they possibly can and go undetected. But see, 
without the saving work of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible for us to discern the difference. But we have an obligation. If you call yourself a brother or a sister in Christ to look at you in a sense, if you really are who you say you are. Now, this goes against the trend of today, which is you just accept anyone and you accept everyone. But what good is it if I convince you that you are something that you are not? How does that bring any glory to God if I let you come into a church and be comfortable being only a professing Christian and not a practicing one? See, that's not just the job of the pastor, but Jesus here is saying that's the job of all Christians. You look at the professing Christian and you look for their practices. See, what is often missed about this text is that Jesus doesn't say that counterfeits don't produce fruit. He doesn't say that. He says they don't produce any fruit that is actually fruitful. They produce rotten fruit. They produce dead fruit. They produce diseased fruit. And I don't know how many people, Bill Payne, this is the third time I'm calling you out in the service. I don't know how many people actually garden and make vegetables and fruits. He does. But there is a proven process. I was over his house recently and I grabbed what looked to be like a really good ripe blackberry. It looked great and it was dark and it had the right color. And then I bit into it and it wasn't good. Very often the same thing happens to us when we see people that look fruitful, that look like the real thing, that look like the real deal. But unless we are willing to actually test what that fruit is, we will always be deceived by who's a real Christian and who's not. And what God is trying to get us to understand is he doesn't want us biting into bad fruit. So there has to be one, a testing process, but there has to be an assessing process as well. And John tells us about that process. In 1 John 4 and 1, he tells us that in conjunction with assessing the fruit, we must test the spirit. We have to test the spirit. The professing Christian who is not growing in fruitfulness in their lives may be a counterfeit. We have to be able to see that. So in turn, faith is a balancing act. It is a balancing act. It is balanced between what works you have and the motivation of those works. See... While we are absolutely concerned about what good faith produces in us, I think it's also important to see what false faith produces in us as well. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Now this one, this one is hard for a lot of people because a lot of people don't know that this scripture is actually in the Bible, but it is. And so it's important for you to know that it is in there so that if you ever see anything happening at Victory City, I want you to understand our only motivation is to be right with the word of God, not right with the opinions of the world or right with the new age philosophies of new churches. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to actually go out of the world. But now I'm writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. He's not saying that they are a Christian. He's saying that they're calling themselves a Christian. Who bears the name of a, of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do? Please hear this text. So when people say, you can't judge me, I'm like, I can't judge me. Read this text to them. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. We as Christians perform and assess the lives of those who are inside the church. And if they are unrepentant, what does Paul say? You purge the evil person from among you. That means if you are a Christian, you should be looking at the lives of other professing Christians and assessing whether or not they're the real deal. That is a job of a Christian. You'll find out even in this circumstance, why was Paul having to address this? Is because there, there was a man who was sleeping with his stepmother and nobody was saying anything about it. And you know what he said? He says, I have not even seen sin like this in the pagans. See, our job is to not make professing Christians comfortable if they're not practicing Christians. Our job is to bring their profession into practice. Now, I don't want you or anyone else to believe that just because you are saved by grace through faith, that means that you lack actual practice of your Christianity in your life. Paul is telling the Christians in the Corinthian church that you simply cannot misapply grace. And that's what happens a lot of times. We misapply grace where there are things that the Bible have absolutely said are wrong. There are things the Bible have, has actually absolutely called sin. And instead of addressing it, instead of bringing those people into right practice, we just tell them grace. And grace is there. But one of the aspects of grace is not that it just catches you when you fall, but it can even prevent a fall from happening. And even if in the case that you fall, grace doesn't just catch you, but it picks you up, turns you around, and helps you repent. That is what real, actual grace does in our lives. And far too often, because we are taking advantage of what should be grace, people are not changing. And they're not producing good works. There are practices that follow the Christian life of a Christian and a non-Christian. 
And it is the responsibility of real practicing Christians to, as we judge our lives, to judge everybody else's. So when James says that faith without practice, faith without works is dead, he is saying that saving faith produces a life change in us. And not only that, but the life change should be evident to everybody who sees us. That's what saving faith is. So if you are encountering people who are telling you that they are Christians, but it has not produced one good practices, good behaviors and a life change in them. then Maybe they're not a Christian. I think that's important for us to understand. If salvation has not produced life changing disciplines and fruitful actions in the life of the professing Christian. James said this. Their faith is dead. That's what he said. If you are claiming to be a Christian and it hasn't produced anything discernible in your life, your faith is dead. It's not real. It's illegitimate. You only have the profession, but you don't have the practice. Because our relationship with grace, our relationship with the Father, Our relationship with the Son, our relationship with the Spirit, does not produce more sin in our lives, but grace produces more obedience in our lives. And that brings us to our next point, which is um, a little redundant. Faith is faithful. It's the best way I can put it. Saving faith is faithful. It's faithful. I do realize that it sounds redundant when you hear it, but not when you really understand what's going on here. See, we are saved by grace, which means our saving faith is a gift from God. And that means anybody in this room who is saying that you are a Christian, and if you are a Christian, you didn't do it on your own. The salvation that you have was a gift of grace that God gave you. Therefore, if God gave you that gift, there is nothing you can do to lose that gift. There is nothing you can do to forfeit that gift. Because a gift from God, if it's eternal, can never be temporary. And that's eternal security. The grace that saved us, hear this, and I say it slowly so you can write it down. The grace that saved us produces the faith that keeps us. That's what happens. The grace that saved us produces the faith that keeps us. Now, people who have a bad understanding of grace and faith think that teaching eternal security is an endorsement to sin. And they think that it will lead to more sin in us. But that can't be the case. Surely God would not promise to us what would prevent us from best serving him and doing his will. I want you to look at Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And jump down to verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. That's what it is. Not servants. Slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end. What is that? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is not temporary life, but eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. That is important for you to hear. What does salvation produce in us? A holding faith that he is saying will save us and keep us until the end. There's nothing you can do to lose it. See, Paul is saying here, if you have a right view of God, you have a right view of grace. That means that you have saving faith, which is a gift from God. And if you have saving faith, just as you were slaves to sin and free from righteousness, now you are slaves to righteousness and free from sin. That is what saving faith produces in us. So what is Paul saying? If you are in Christ and if you have saving faith, you would never attempt to take advantage of grace. That's what he's telling you. If you are really a Christian, you are not looking for loopholes in the Bible so that you can have a free license to sin. It is only the people who come to you and say, well, can I do this or can I do that? Or the Bible never mentioned this. If you are looking for a loophole to get out of your faith, you ain't never have it in the first place. Because saving faith produces such a grace in our lives that we never seek to take advantage of it because we know how beneficial it is. Only unregenerate sinners are comfortable continuing in sin. Now, I'm not telling you that believers don't stumble into sin. I'm not telling you that believers don't fall into sin, but they're never comfortable in it. And they always get out of it. And that's not because of their own doing. Because the grace that was there to save them produced the faith that will keep them. And if you want to know a really mature, practicing, professing, believing Christian, if they are in sin, they're going to find somebody to tell to be able to get themselves out of it. Because a real Christian doesn't hide their sin, they expose it. Because the idea is not to look good in front of people, it's to be acceptable in the eyes of God. People who teach you that you can, leave, that you can lose your salvation or backslide 
think that by teaching eternal security, it is a license to sin. But if I could lose my salvation and then gain it back when it was convenient and then lose it and then gain it back, doesn't that seem more of an endorsement to sin than eternal security? Because if I know I can just lose it and get it back at any time, I'll go 30 years. And the minute I get the cancer diagnosis, I just flip a switch. All right, God, I'm ready to come back. No. Eternal security says that God has sealed you. He has sealed you and he is keeping you. And the only evidence that you are a Christian is that you are kept. Not that you fall. Now, I never say this, but I am preaching in here. (laughs) My goodness. Well, it's the word of God. Honestly, it is. Not only that, but the Bible teaches us that the idea that you can lose your faith and regain it is a bad view of what salvation is. And I'm not making these scriptures up. It's in Hebrews. And I've seen people try to use the scripture to promote something it doesn't promote, but I'm going to tell you what it actually means. Jump with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. And this says it better than I can even think it. For it is impossible in the case of those who, were, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What is the Hebrew writer saying here? He says there are people who have intellectually heard the gospel, who can communicate the gospel, who can even comprehend the gospel, seen and perhaps temporarily encountered the work of the the Holy Spirit, but did not receive the gospel beyond their brain. I know a lot of them. He is saying, the writer is saying here that even if it were possible, hear this, even if it were possible for them to have received the conversion of the Holy Spirit and then fall away. So he's already saying, even if that were were possible, you know what's more impossible? Them ever being restored back to saving faith. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He says, even if you could lose your salvation, you know what is an impossibility? That a person who could lose it could ever regain it. Knowing this, no one who is a Christian with saving faith will seek opportunities to make a liar out of God. So if that's the case, then who is responsible for our faith? It's a good question. So you're talking about faith. You're talking about words. But I need to know who's responsible for my faith. Is it me or is it God? And my best answer to that question is yes. Yes. Let me show you something. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Now, you see here, this is the power of the Trinity. It holds us in our relationship with God. It is by his power that we remain in relationship with him. Now, you may read that and you say, well, okay, that takes the onus off of me then. Holy Spirit got me. Jesus said he got me. Father said he got me. I'm good. He got me. I can just sit back and relax and wait till Jesus comes back. Hold your horses. If you go to Philippians 2 and 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Some of you are probably thinking, okay, now, now I got it. Now I know it's all on me. Then. It's all on me. I got coach for me in the game, coach. I'm good. It's all on me. I'm going to go get it. It's all on me. One more scripture, one more scripture. Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, You're sorely confused. Is it me? Is it him? Who is responsible for my salvation and my faith? Who is it? Well, it's you. But it's through him. Does that make sense? All these scriptures are telling us that the only reason we don't stress about effort and works is because it is the responsibility of the Son to produce those works in us through the Holy Spirit. But it is our responsibility to adhere to and listen to the Spirit as it instructs us, as it leads us, as it guides us, and as it directs us. All believers according to Romans 8, are led by the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit is what sanctifies us. Without the grace of God, we would be unable to hear the Spirit at all. And without the Holy Spirit, we lack the capacity to obey the Word. Think of it like this. In the public school system, There are some teachers who have tenure. There are some teachers who, because they have tenure, don't actually teach. There are some teachers who they get paid 12 months. And so they don't teach during the school year, and they definitely don't think about school when they're not working. Now, if you look at them by definition, by their role, by their label, they're a teacher. But I think we all know Anybody sitting in their class will tell you, if you don't teach, you're not actually a teacher. It doesn't matter what other people call you. But then you have other people who, even though they are tenured, they still give it everything they have. Even though they get paid 12 months, they don't stop thinking about their students. They don't stop thinking about their classes. 
Because they love what they do. And they love who they are. See, the difference is, is that most of us, we're the tenured teacher who doesn't do crap. Because you know what? I think I'm good. I got this tenure. I got the Holy Spirit. I got salvation. I'm just going to sit back, kick back, relax. Jesus, when you come get me, I'm good, brother. But the real Christian, because they have such an understanding of the beautiful power of God's grace, and they love him so much, say, yeah, I know I'm going to spend eternity with you. I know I'm going to heaven, but I can't help but tell everybody else about you. I can't help but show you in my life and show you in my works because heaven was great. But I got to get some other people in with me as well because I love what I know about God. A real Christian is not simply content chilling. A real Christian is motivated by the grace of God in their lives to spend time with people who may have a bad odor. To give money to people when you are making a real sacrifice. To spend time with people who are getting on your nerves. Not because you think it marries you anything, but because you love God too much to disappoint him. See, saving faith produces good works in us. And if you claim to have Saving faith it has not produced any discernible works in your life. Then you should question what faith you have. Do I have saving faith? Or am I like the people that Paul talked about and the Hebrew writer talked about, which is I can intellectually comprehend the gospel. I can even tell you the gospel. I just don't believe the gospel. Now, it's absolutely essential that you take a personal assessment of your own life. But it's likewise essential that if you are in a body of believers, that you allow them to always take an assessment of your life. Because you do not want to take advantage of grace. And when you see how great the grace of God is and how it has led to such a great faith in him, then not only will it produce good disciplines in my life, it will produce fruitful evidence of my relationship with God. I've heard it said like this, if you were ever accused of being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Let's pray.